Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of The Trail, from New Hampshire to the White House. Anyone who wants to be president has to come through New Hampshire first, and no one covers New Hampshire politics like WMUR. I'm WMUR political director Adam Sexton, and we hope you can join us every week for this podcast. There's a lot of speculation about who will run in what's likely to be a jam-packed Democratic presidential primary field. So far, only a few have said that they're officially in. One candidate who has made that announcement, former San Antonio mayor and former housing, uh, Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, Julian Castro. Secretary, thanks for joining Great us. Great to be with you, Adam. So uh, after making that announcement in Texas, uh, you took a little bit of an unorthodox route there, uh, going straight to Puerto Rico, of all places. Tell us about the message you wanted to send by making that trip first. The message I wanted to send by going to San Juan is that everybody counts in this country. And um, I don't have to tell folks that uh, the Trump administration failed miserably to protect the people of Puerto Rico when Hurricane Maria hit. I wanted them to know that if I'm elected president, that uh, I'm going to work every single day to make sure that they can not only recover, but that they can thrive. It was also about a larger message to the entire country that I will work hard on everybody's behalf, no matter where they live, no matter what their background is, that I'll be a president for all Americans. How important, though, is New Hampshire to your campaign? Well, I came right to New Hampshire uh, after Puerto Rico. Uh, I've been here now in the last year four times. Uh, I was here first uh, on January 24th of 2018 to speak to the New Hampshire Young Democrats. I think that we visited uh, right. when I came about a year ago, and I was here last time on October 24th to speak at one of the county party dinners. So it's a state that uh, I'm going to compete in. I think I can resonate well with the voters here, connect with them, uh, and I want to do the hard work that it takes to win this primary. And certainly you did a lot of work on behalf of the candidates running for state and local office here in New Hampshire. You're not shying away from inheriting that mantle as sort of the underdog presidential candidate. But how does an underdog find a path to the White House in this current environment uh, where it feels like you need a big platform or sort of a, a going big to take on President Trump? Well, you know, I think that, uh, that people are actually looking for somebody that they can relate to as maybe not the front runner. And uh, the other day I announced in the neighborhood that I grew up in, in San Antonio on the west side, and I said that, um, you know, people could look around that neighborhood and could see that there weren't a lot of front runners, um, or nobody was a front runner that was born or growing up there, including me. And I don't, can't think of a single time in my life when somebody would say, hey, you're the front runner. The thing about folks here in New Hampshire and people across the country, especially these days, is I think there are a lot of people who don't feel like the front runner. And I'm going to go and talk to them. And I'm going to show them how, if I'm elected president, I will make sure that I work hard so that they can get a good job, so that they can have good health care when they're sick, so that their children can get a good education, and that they are able to reach their American dream. Certainly being the front runner might not mean much if there are you know, three dozen candidates in the race. Are you preparing strategically for a Democratic primary with 24 to 30 candidates? I don't think that there would be that many people in it. Um, one of the things that I've seen very clearly just since I announced an exploratory committee on December 12th is how many moving parts there are to this whole process. I think ultimately that you're probably going to have uh, between 15 and 18 candidates. That's still a lot. That's about the number that ran uh, in the Democratic primary in 1976, in the Republican primary in 2016. Uh, it presents some challenges uh, to the Democratic National Committee. It also, of course, means that uh, the 
people here in New Hampshire who take their politics very seriously and try and get to know candidates are going to have a lot of people coming through here and a lot of work to do. But I think that all of us are going to be better for it. It's going to sharpen up the candidates. It's going to mean that the nominee is able to to be even stronger and better and sharper in the fall of 2020 against President Trump. And the nominee that has to take on President Trump will probably have to be someone who's ready for a fight. That's essentially the style of the president. Um, some candidates or near candidates on the Democratic side have taken the tack of, I'm not even going to say the president's name. You're not doing that. You're not shying away from it. In fact, I think you called yourself the antidote to President Trump, the implication being that he's some kind of poison. Uh, do you think that it's going to take kind of like a schoolyard fight to defeat President Trump? Uh, I, I don't think we're going to beat Donald Trump by trying to be Donald Trump. And so the first thing that I've tried to do is to give people my vision for the future of this country. I want people to know what I believe in and what they can stand for, not just what they're going to stand against. Uh, and so I've talked about making sure that our country in the 21st century is the smartest, the healthiest, the fairest, and the most prosperous nation on earth. That doesn't mean that I don't talk about Trump and where I think he's fallen short. I did that in Puerto Rico. I just mentioned the failure of the disaster recovery there. I've done that on a number of issues, but I don't think that we should obsess solely on Donald Trump. First and foremost, you need to tell people, what are you about? What are you going to do for them and their family if you're elected? And that's what I'm going to focus on. Let's focus on some international relations right now. The president has said he's going to pull U.S. forces out of Syria. We just saw a terror attack there that has claimed U.S. lives. Is the president making a mistake by withdrawing so precipitously from Syria? Well, I think a lot of people on uh, different sides of the political spectrum agree that we needed a withdrawal withdrawal plan from Syria. However, the president has made a mistake, and many people have said this, uh, in how he's doing it. Uh, he, one day, just all of a sudden, in fact, without telling some important people in his administration, he announced that we were going to withdraw from Syria. Uh, that has an impact on our allies. Obviously, it, if we do it the wrong way, it could further destabilize uh, Syria and the region. He had to backtrack on that just recently. Now he's saying that there may well be a process that we use. So um, this is just one more example of a president who is very erratic. And whether you're in the business community or whether you're uh, in the military or you're just a citizen out there that is concerned about the future of our country, what we need is more certainty. And I want to make sure that when we make decisions like this, we do it in a way that is well thought out, that is decisive, but that offers some sense of certainty about our actions. How comfortable are you with the idea of being commander-in-chief of the greatest military force in the history of mankind? For instance, would you use nuclear weapons in the defense of the United States? I think that you need to keep everything on the table. Uh, I also think it's important to make sure that you surround yourself with uh, people who uh, have experience, who are knowledgeable uh, about uh, our military, about our capacity. That's one of the things, frankly, that I think the president has fallen short on. Uh, he has publicly embarrassed his generals. Uh, he has refused to listen to his advisors. Uh, he seems to make decisions in an erratic uh, and jumpy, haphazard manner. I don't think that we should, we should uh, do that. Um, so yes, I think that you always have to keep everything on the table. But when you make decisions, you have to make well-informed, well-thought-out decisions. And I believe that I can do that. Uh, I think it's also fair to say that 
until you actually sit in that seat, you cannot completely know what it's like to have to make those kinds of life and death decisions. And that should give somebody humility and a sense of listening to others and also understanding your gut values and how you make decisions. And, and I'm prepared for that. There seems to be pretty conclusive evidence that Russia and Vladimir Putin attacked this country's democracy in 2016. Should the United States be responding in kind in some way under a future administration to try and undermine perhaps his government? Well, you know, I believe that, uh, that we have to take measures to ensure that uh, they have an incentive not to do that again. There are different ways that you can do that. Uh, and so, you know, I, I'll leave it at that. Do you think that it's worthwhile to make military spending cuts to finance what would be a very ambitious domestic agenda for you? Well, if they're the right cuts, uh, I, don't think it, I don't think we should compromise our readiness. Uh, I believe, in fact, that what we need to do is that we need to find ways to invest in the people of our military. You know, our, our men and women in uniform, uh, on active duty and also veterans, whether it's the VA or other benefits uh, that impact their quality of life, invest in that as much as we've seemed to invest in weapon systems uh, and other things, hardware in the past. But do I think that uh, we should hold the Department of Defense accountable for the way that they spend money and that if we can achieve savings in certain places, be able to invest in uh, a better health care system or better education system? Yeah, I do. Back to the domestic front here on your recent trip. You spent time in Laconia at a recovery center getting a first-hand look at essentially the front lines of the opioid crisis. What's your plan uh, to help New Hampshire and the rest of the country really pull out of this addiction? What I heard today is that um, there are great efforts that are being made uh, in the nonprofit sector um, this uh, navi uh, Navigating Recovery Center in Laconia was one example of that. And I think what, what people need here in New Hampshire is they need a strong partner in Washington, D.C. that is committed to delivering the resources so that whether it's in New Hampshire or it's in my home state of Texas or wherever it is, that at the local level, um, nonprofits and service delivery providers can make sure that people have what they need uh, to get over an addiction if they are addicted, but hopefully to avoid addiction in the first place. The Obama administration, as you know, did some good work in this regard, um, but I think that we need to continue that and we need to increase the resources that go out to these communities. Is that treatment best provided under a single-payer health care system? Oh, I think ultimately that we do need to move to a Medicare for All system. Um, I've said very clearly that that ought to be a priority for this country. Uh, I know that that's not going to be easy. I look forward during the course of this campaign to releasing my plan on how we would accomplish that. Uh, but yeah, we can have a better health care system in this country. And when I go out there and I talk to people, what I hear is that whether people are liberal or they're conservative, they're open to the idea of uh, universal health care coverage. They want to know how you're going to get there. And, uh, and I think that it's incumbent upon everybody to make sure that we have a good plan. Um, it's not going to be easy, but I, I think that it's worth the effort um, because in the wealthiest nation on earth, there is no single reason that 
anybody, any American, should go without health care when they need it. We'll certainly be hearing a lot more about those plans in the months to come. Thank you. Secretary Castro, we appreciate your time. Thanks for being here. He's the sheriff known by one name. Oh, howdy, Andy. Hi, Andy. Hey, Andy. Hi, Andy. 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 On The Andy Griffith Show. Weeknight starting at 8. Me TV New Hampshire, sponsored by Heritage Plumbing, Heating, Cooling, Electric. The first major candidate into the 2020 race had a pretty good head start. Congressman John Delaney made it official all the way back in July 2017. But now he's got company. Mr. Delaney, who just left office a few weeks ago, is our guest this morning. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Adam. Let's start with a news item that has official Washington, at least, a buzz yeah. uh, from the end of the week on Friday. Uh, BuzzFeed is reporting mm -hmm. that uh, Michael Cohen, uh, President Trump's former attorney, was yeah. directed by the president to lie to Congress about the negotiations over the Trump Tower in Moscow. And this uh, information, the reporting is based on, not on Mr. Cohen's word, but on the word of uh, law enforcement officials at the federal level. We've heard reports like this before that prompt Democrats to say, oh, this is the beginning of the yeah. end for President Trump. But do you believe this is an inflection point towards eventual impeachment? Well, this is a very serious allegation, obviously. I mean, this past week we saw the president's attorney general nominee testify and a question that was put to him was if you tell someone uh, to lie, right, in court or in front of Congress, whatever the case, or in a deposition, whatever the case may be, to perjure themselves, is that obstruction of justice? And the attorney general nominee for the president said, yes, that is obstruction of justice. So if this report turns out to be true, and if it turns out to be valid, then the president has, in fact, obstructed justice. And obviously, that's a whole different Whole different ball game in terms of what we've been talking about. Yeah, certainly a lot of wait and see on that. Let's shift yeah. back to the race here. But I think I think the special counsel really does need to respond to the American people about this, mm. <clears throat> because if he has information that confirms these reports, I think he has to get that information out even even before his report is done, so that the Congress can start acting on this. Wouldn't you want the full? I mean, a lot. Of I do want the full are. report, but if we actually have, if if the special counsel actually has evidence, clear evidence right, that the president told someone to perjure themselves and therefore obstructed justice, I do think we need to get that information you know, right away. Certainly for now, only Mr. Mueller and his team know. Yes, that's right. So you've had this thing, this field to yourself yes. for a long time now. It's getting a little bit more crowded. You get to see some of your competitors jumping in there. Make the case that uh, this long haul that you've had here is actually giving you an advantage. Well, it's allowed me to introduce myself to voters. And importantly, it's allowed me to listen to them. Because a big part of this job is actually listening, right? Listening to what's happening to people, have them tell their stories about what's happening in their lives. And that's part of this incredibly important process we have uh, in the primaries. But it's most importantly given me an opportunity to talk to people, to tell them what my vision for the country is, how the central issue facing this country is that we're too divided, and how I want to unify this country, start getting real things done that matter to the American people, and then I have a vision to build a better future for our country and restore a sense of kind of moral aspiration to who we are as a people and as a country. What did and you learn from the people of New Hampshire? Well, I've learned from the people of New Hampshire that a lot of them are struggling, right, despite the fact that we see kind of this good economic data on a, on a kind of a high level, on a macro level, what's, what's kind of down at, in people's families and in their homes is not the same story we see when we see the stock market going up and, and things like that. I hear a lot about the opioid crisis that's obviously hitting this state particularly hard. I hear a lot of anxiety from families worrying, will their kids have a job here in New Hampshire? Or are they gonna have to commute to Boston? Or are they gonna have to move out of this area? 
So I hear those kind of concerns that you expect people to have, things that are affecting their families, their children, opportunities for, for their kids. Will they be able to stay in their communities? What's happening with their job? They're worried about how technology and automation, we were just talking about that as it relates to to this uh, wonderful set we're, we're sitting on, how technology is changing everything. They're worried, will this be disrupting their jobs? So there's a lot of anxiety out there. And they're obviously very concerned with the president. You present yourself as a problem solver. How yes. would you solve the problem of the government shutdown? Would you accept a compromise that would put some sort of barrier on the southern border? <clears throat> well, I wouldn't have caused the shutdown. So, so one of the best ways to solve problems is not to create them. And so, you know, the president is a problem maker. I do view myself as a problem solver. Look, I think that the U.S. Senate, the Republicans in the Senate, should reopen the government up now, obviously. You know, the Congress can open the government up, and if they have enough support, Democrats and Republicans, it doesn't matter what the president says, right, because they could override his veto. So that's what should happen right now. But I am in favor of a big immigration deal. Right. And if this government shutdown could lead us back to the place where we were in 2013, where we had a large, comprehensive immigration reform bill that passed the U.S. Senate on a bipartisan basis, if somehow this terrible, stupid, embarrassing shutdown could put us in a position where we could actually get that kind of comprehensive immigration reform done, which includes substantial border security money, by the way, I would be in favor of that, absolutely. You've referred to the American criminal justice system as immoral. Yes. What does this say about police? Well, I don't think it, 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 it's as much as an issue with law enforcement as it is with some of the other kind of structural kind of unfairness that exists in our criminal justice system. One of the reasons I refer to our criminal justice system as immoral is if you look at the facts, one in three African-American men in this country will be incarcerated at some point in their life, right? Which is much different than any other part of our country in terms of the rate of incarceration. So there's clearly racial injustice in our criminal justice system. This notion of mandatory minimums have, has been incredibly penal for certain people. It's ruined their lives. They don't have the kind of representation in our system that, that other people who get caught up with a criminal justice issue. So I think there needs to be comprehensive reform. We took a good step in the Congress not long ago with this First Step Act. I think more has to be done, including thinking about what we're gonna do for people whose lives were ruined by this system. Because it's one thing for us all to sit around here and say, we have a terrible criminal justice system, we have to fix it, and we should. And the day when we actually really truly fix it, we also then have to ask ourselves a question, well, what about the people who, who fell victim to this system for the last several decades? What are we gonna do to them? What measure of restitution do we as a society have for those people? So it's possible that President Trump won't be delivering a State of the Union address. Yes. You proposed an interesting idea. You want the president in the future to debate Congress on a quarterly basis. That's right. And I have nothing against State of the Union address, right? Unfortunately, it's become a bit of a political speech. I would much rather see the president, which is what I plan on doing, actually talking about what's happening in our country, a true State of the Union. But I think one of the problems we have as a nation right now is the American people are having a hard time finding the truth. Right? They're getting information from so many different sources, and it's becoming very difficult for them to sort out what's actually happening in the world versus what they're being kind of told and spun by ideologically driven kind of news sources. And I think what would be transformative is if the President of the United States, every three months, went to the floor of the House of Representatives and had a debate with the Congress on national television. I'm proposing a three-hour debate. First of all, the President ought to be able to do it. 
right? They ought to be able to stand on their feet and answer questions in front of the American people. First hour and a half on one particular issue, second hour and a half kind of question time. I think it would be transformative because I think the American people would start figuring out who's telling the truth and would force our elected officials to be more honest, right? Because they're out there on their feet. This is not a tweet. This is not a press release. This is not a press conference where you pick the questions. This is you on your feet talking to people who may disagree with you or may agree with you on the important issues of the day and the American people watching it. Speaking of Congress, one of your former colleagues, Tulsi Gabbard, announced for president, uh, I believe, uh, last week and faced huge blowback right away over some uh, past anti-gay uh, activism. It wasn't just a couple statements. This was activism. She had to apologize. Um, do you think that someone with that background, even though she has changed her views, uh, someone who is so uh, specifically anti-gay saying something like inviting uh, homosexual advocacy organizations into our schools is a mistake uh, because they could influence children, is that someone who should be a standard bearer for a party? So listen, I serve with Tulsi. Tulsi and I actually came into the Congress together. We were in the same uh, class, the class of 2012. I'm actually not that familiar with some of the stuff you're talking about. I did see the stories, but I didn't spend a lot of time on it. I mean, my position on these issues is very clear. But this campaign is actually about what I'm going to do for the American people. And maybe it's the entrepreneur in me, but I tend to think of running for office more about what I'm going to do and explaining to the American people my vision for the future and how I'm going to make things happen as opposed to worrying about what's going on in other people's campaign. So the short answer is I haven't spent a lot of time on, on these allegations about what Tulsi did a long time ago. Tulsi's a friend of mine. We serve together. Uh, but the campaign is really about what I'm going to do. All right, Congressman John Delaney, it's been great. Adam, nice to see you. We'll see you back here in a few months. Absolutely. Thanks for joining us for WMUR's The Trail, from New Hampshire to the White House. If you have a moment and can write a review or subscribe to this podcast, we'd certainly appreciate it. You can also find us on WMUR.com and our free WMUR app 24-7. See you for the next episode of this podcast next week.